This is the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tim's on a business trip to California, so it's me and my lonesome again. Do you know the way to San Jose? Tech fan number 30. said in the intro, I'm recording on my own this week, uh, couldn't get an interview lined up, and, and to be honest with you, it's been a really crazy week for me. We had a long bank holiday weekend here in the UK last weekend, because we had the Royal Wedding on the Friday, and then it was a bank holiday on the Monday. So, um, as, I, as I was talking to, to Gaz about last week, when we have bank holidays here, I find that um, we end up doing the same amount of work we would normally do. Uh, in four days that uh, that you would normally do over five. And the fact that we had two bank holiday weekends of, of uh, long weekends back-to-back made that even worse. So, unfortunately, work's been crazy this week. I was hoping to get the show recorded yesterday, um, doing it doing it during my, uh, my lunch hour in the office, which is when I normally do it with Tim. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So, um, I'm running a little bit late, so apologies that the show's going to come out to you a, a little bit late. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of doing it on the hoof. I'm recording at home, but uh, I haven't really got time to get any of my equipment set up. So it's uh, sat in the uh, dining room on my iPhone, kind of dictating away, which I suppose kind of suits the solo nature of the show this week. Um, so, you know, that it's kind of been a crazy week in the tech world the last couple of weeks. You know, the last couple of weeks have really been kind of crazy in the tech world. There's been so much going on. Um, it's kind of hard to know where to start, really. Um, I suppose winding winding backwards through the week. Um, a couple of days ago, Apple released new iMacs with the um, the Sandy Bridge processors in. Now, Sandy Bridge is um, Intel's latest platform for the uh, core i3, i5, and i7 processors. And the thing about Sandy Bridge is they've redesigned the motherboards around the processors, so they're really fast, substantially faster than older Core 2 Duo or Core Duo systems. So, um, got to admit, I, I kind of find myself browsing through the uh, through the listings on the Apple Store, kind of bit, a little bit tempted by the iMacs. I use a laptop at work, uh, a MacBook Pro, 13-inch MacBook Pro, that long-term listeners of the show will know that I've kind of upgraded with loads of RAM and an SSD and that sort of thing. Um, but it's still a laptop, and I don't really go anywhere with it. Um, I have the MacBook Air for when I'm traveling, and I also have a, an IBM ThinkPad that, uh, that the company gives me. So I'm kind of really covered for portable machines, and I'm really tempted to um, sell the MacBook Pro and go with an, either a new iMac or perhaps the previous generation iMac on a refurbished basis. Just so I've got a full desktop machine that's kind of... It's a little bit easier to, to set up on my desk. I'm not constantly plugging things in and out of it. I don't obviously don't really want to leave a laptop lying around my desk when I'm not in the office. Uh, it's a bit, little bit too easy for somebody just to walk off with it. Um, obviously, it's a little bit harder to walk off with an iMac. And I have a system there that's kind of permanently mounted on the desk rather than 
something that has to be constantly plugged and unplugged. So I'm kind of thinking about that. I, I don't know whether I'm going to do that or not. I'm still debating it. But, uh, you know, um, advice I've given to, to listeners before, but uh, definitely would reiterate, it doesn't matter what stripe of computer you're particularly into, whether it be um, Apple, like, like Tim and I, or whether it be Dell or HP or think uh, Lenovo ThinkPads or, or whatever it is, if you can find a way to, to get refurbished machines rather than brand new, um, you'll save a bunch of money. And nowadays, most manufacturers, when they issue a refurbished machine, is pretty much as good as new. It might have been something that's returned or perhaps been repaired, but they kind of bring it up to fully manufactured standards before they send it out. And certainly with the Apple stuff, the only difference you get from buying new as opposed to buying refurbished is the fact the box is not white, but it's a brown plain box rather than a white retail box. So um, definitely opportunity to save money there if you're interested in a new system. So um, food for thought on that. Going back further than that, at the beginning of the week we had the um, the announcement by the uh, by the US that they had located and uh, um, got into the compound of Osama bin Laden and, and killed him. Um, what was interesting, I suppose, about that from a tech perspective is the appearance of pictures showing the White House team, uh, President Obama, the uh, Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, and various other people, apparently watching the raid uh, on a live video feed. Now, a couple of people I've spoken to kind of looked at that picture and um, commented on it in some way. Some some people think it looks actually very staged um, and have suggested that perhaps the only video they might have been able to get from the from the raid was a uh, an overhead view from a drone, maybe. That, so, in fact, you know, they, they weren't actually watching what was going on inside the house. Um, I, I don't really know about that, really. Um, I, I know that from work I do in, in the police here in the UK that um, they are looking and, and using quite regularly now uh, at uh, helmets or shoulder-mounted cameras to allow uh, kind of decision-makers back at a, an operational centre to certainly view what's going on at an incident and potentially make command decisions on the basis of what they see, uh, certainly to support decision-makers there on the ground about what they see. Obviously, in terms of the uh, Bin Laden raid, I don't think that the president was actually saying, go left, go right, shoot here, shoot there. Uh, I think it was a case of just seeing what was going on. Um, but it's interesting to, to think that, you know, we now apparently do have the sort of technology you often see in the movies, where um, people are able to watch, watch events as they happen live from right around the world um, on something that uh, on something that, that potentially is just a camera mounted on on somebody's shoulder, and um, you know I, I think that's that's interesting. I, I don't know what really what that means for us as a as a society, um, whether it kind of dehumanises these sorts of things turns them into something less visceral and less real, makes them look more like a video game. That's certainly some of the accusations that have been made. And anybody who's played games like Call of Duty on the Xbox 360 or on the PC knows that um, you know those games purport to, to, to give a, a realistic, but obviously heavily fictionalised and dramatised view of what it's like to be in a, in a Special Forces team. Um, I actually kind of veer towards the other way, which is that it probably, I think it helps for a politician uh, and for a decision maker who's sending um, the nation's troops into harm's way to actually see what that means in real life. 
um, even if it's through a video screen, to actually get a feel for what these guys have to actually go through in order to accomplish the orders that they're given, and the also the you know the outcomes of those orders. If if, if that is seen in graphic real time, um, you know no no sanitization, no pixelation, no modification but actually the raw um, vision of what the guy pulling the trigger sees, then maybe that will have, have an impact in terms of the decisions that the people make and, and whether they'll make better decisions or worse decisions, I don't know. I'm probably not really qualified to say, but certainly they will make those decisions, I would hope, with more of a view of the real implications of what those decisions are going to mean for real people. Uh, and uh, you have to hope that that can only be a good thing. One other thing that kind of was commented to me by uh, several people on Twitter, actually, was um, a surprise kind of how uh, plain and functional and small this situation room that the uh, picture was taken in uh, looked. I guess we're all used to, um, again, movie sets where the president sits in a a shiny steel bunker surrounded by flashing lights and video screens and uh, lots of sophisticated technology. Um, it would appear that real life is uh, is much different than that. It's much kind of the room kind of looked like uh, you know your average small size meeting room. The laptops set up on the table and and they're all sat around watching screens. Wasn't an awful lot of of room in there and certainly not a lot of flashing technology. Uh, kind of hanging around the place, uh, and I, I know that, that President Obama has has complained in the past about how um, he was unpleasantly surprised when he got to the White House about how technolo technologically backward a lot of the systems are. I mean, quite old, um, based on old technology, old operating systems, and not really anywhere near as sophisticated as perhaps the uh, the movies might. Uh, might portray. I guess you know when the real world intrudes and you've got a, a real budget to to spend on on equipment, then you can't afford to have the fripperies of the shiny surfaces and the flashing lights. But um, an interesting thought, anyway. So that was um, that was the Bin Laden um, raid and uh, and what, what happened out of that. Winding that obviously winding back obviously previously from that is the royal wedding that Gaz and I touched on last week. Um, Interesting from a text perspective, purely in the fact that so many people are able to watch it at one time live, uh, whatever the uh, whatever the uh, time zone or, or time of day they were in, um, you know, there was a huge media centre that was set up for that um, just outside Buckingham Palace, and you you know you may have seen it in the background of some of the footage. There was kind of a, a basically a, a four-story stack of studios all with glass windows big glass windows looking out of the palace um and those were the um the rooms where all the media were were kind of based and were able to commentate from and they were given feeds by the bbc from all the cameras the bbc were the only ones who actually had cameras in the in the ceremony and all of that and again it's interesting that um you know with relatively little notice um it's interesting how a, a global television media event can be put together uh, and beamed around the world and um you know i guess it kind of makes the world a much smaller place than it used to be so um you know somewhat sometimes it, you wish it was used for events of somewhat more importance than than a wedding as, as nice as the royal wedding was and i know a lot of people got an awful lot of pleasure out of it obviously it's not a uh, a particularly 
epic or world-changing event from from one perspective. So um, uh, it would be nice to see maybe all of that media coverage put to something that's perhaps a bit more um, impactful on the world than than somebody's wedding, even if they do happen to be royal and uh, future king of England. Uh, and you know, previous from that, we're we're back to where where Gaz and I were talking about last week. Now we talked at length last week about the Sony um, the Sony security breach, uh, and in the meantime, between then and now, there's been a couple of others. First of all, Sony announced that um, another network of theirs, their Sony Entertainment Online network, had also been compromised. Uh, that was another thirty-five million uh, potential records available to the bad guys. Um, there was a suspected breach by LastPass a couple of days ago. And this was interesting because, first of all, LastPass's attitude for dealing it was very different than uh, than Sony's in that they saw an anomalous log, had a quick look at it, um, saw that some data they wouldn't expect normally to move around their system had moved uh, and immediately kind of let everyone know about it and said, look, we, we've seen some... Activity here we don't necessarily understand, so let's assume the worst and assume that we've had a breach and let's act accordingly. It did kind of keep them in the backside in the short term because um, what happened was certainly for most of yesterday, Friday, it was very difficult to actually log in using LastPass. Sorry, I should rewind a little and to those who don't know what LastPass is. LastPass is, a, is one of these... Um, uh, kind of partial cloud single security solutions. So the idea with LastPass is that you, every time you log on to a website that requires a username and password, you can um, store the username and password for that site in a database that stays on your PC, um, but is also replicated to LastPass's servers up in the cloud. Uh, and then any other computers you uh, want to go to, you can either access the LastPass web your account using the LastPass website and see all your passwords and feed those passwords programmatically into logon screens. Or alternatively, you can install a browser plugin and that will do also do the same thing for you. Now, LastPass is very, very well architectured. Everything is secured. Um, you do not at any time give LastPass your master password that kind of unlocks your vault with all these other passwords in. Um, the only thing they receive is, is a, a cryptographic hash of the password. So it's a um, an algor- a one-way algorithm that turns your password into something that's, that, that's then uh, encrypted and sent to LastPass for them to compare to. So when you log on, you don't actually give them your password. You just give them uh, a hash generated from what you type in, and they compare that to the hash they have. And if it matches, they, they allow you access. Um, but they, they did uh, suggest that ha- if they had been breached and it transpired after about uh, 12, 14 hours, they actually you know, rode things back and said, oh, maybe we haven't been breached, perhaps we overreacted. Um, even if they had been breached, all that would, they would have um, been able to do, the bad guys would have been able to do, is, is basically try and brute force people's accounts, which means to constantly try different passwords against their, their accounts in the hope of matching the hash that they pulled out of LastPass's servers. So um, the level of risk was extremely low, and uh, obviously the longer and more secure your master password is, the harder it's going to be for 
um, a hacker to kind of try every single possible combination and, and hit upon it. Um, but, the, you know, the, here's the difference between LastPass and Sony is that LastPass suspected a breach. As soon as they saw some anomalous activity, they assumed the worst, let their users know uh, and dealt with it accordingly and, um, you know, did suffer, you know, some downtime as a result of that because a lot of people were trying to change their passwords at one go and that's what prevented the LastPass service from logging on properly on my local machine yesterday. It still worked because you have a local copy of the database, but obviously you couldn't, um, if you can't contact the cloud, you can't make any changes to your passwords. So if you add a new site or want to change one, it's not going to be replicated because the, the server portion wasn't available for a while. Um, but, you know, kind of that experience, and I'm a big fan of that sort of technology because, um, to be really secure on the internet, you can't use the same password everywhere. You need to have different ones for every single site you use. LastPass has tools that allows you to generate kind of gnarly, um, unguessable type of passwords of, of you know using different characters, different uh, upper and lower case, uh, different lengths, and all that sort of thing. And generate all that for you, and because they then store it, you don't need to remember what these things are. Um, so I've become a big fan of, of having different passwords everywhere and using LastPass to, to save um, save those passwords into a database. Um, but it did kind of, the whole situation, the Sony situation and, and LastPass, and then there's been a couple of others. There was a big email breach by a, a, an email forwarding company called Epsilon a few weeks ago. It has really kind of get me thinking about how we as a community kind of responds to these incidents. Obviously, there's an awful lot of uh, indignation and outrage, and I'm not trying to give anybody a pass over that. I think if you, as a company, or as an organisation, take the responsibility of storing people's data, um, whatever that data is used for, you have responsibility to try and keep it protected, not allow it to fall into um, the hands of people that you wouldn't necessarily want to share it with. Um, and that's just corporate responsibility. But I, I, I think, don't think that corporate responsibility goes much further than that. Um, I don't think we have... Here we, here we, here's going get, to get to the nub of my, of my thinking on this, really. We kind of have an expectation of a right to privacy. And um, that's, I, I think everyone would agree that's a fairly fundamental human right that, uh, that you know, we, we have a right to keep our own affairs to ourselves unless, we, unless we're doing something illegal or unless we're doing something that's going to affect other people in the community. Um, you know, we should, we should, you should have a starting position, certainly, that you have a right to privacy. But that doesn't mean that that's, in my view anyway, that that right to privacy imposes too high a bar on people who store data about us. They have a they have a right to their privacy and they also have a, that have a responsibility to us to try and protect the data they serve. But they don't have a, uh, they don't have a, a fundamental requirement to not use data they have about us. And, and I think this is where it kind of gets muddy and I think people are forgetting the realities of the situation. The fact is, in terms of your relationship with the various companies and public bodies that you deal with on a regular basis for the for you know living in the western world you don't have privacy and you never have had privacy you haven't had privacy probably since you know for the last 200 years or so 
as soon as people started keeping records uh, and storing records about people for whatever reason, um, because they normally because they needed them to deliver the service that they were running, um, privacy kind of has gone out of the window. The only difference, of course, is that nowadays everything's electronic um, and it's much easier and much quicker to actually take the various chunks of data and do something with it. And uh, obviously most organisations, if they have data about people, they will use it for some reason. Otherwise, they wouldn't collect the data in the first place. And, you know, unfortunately, the nature of it is that once data is there, it's very easy for a company or an organisation to decide to use it for uh, perhaps for a reason that isn't apparently obvious. And I don't believe that that is fundamentally wrong. So if the government connects, collects your name, address, your social security number, um, obviously those are things they have to have to kind of do government business with you. I don't think it's particularly wrong for them to pass that data to another part of the government and use it to, to build you know, a, a, a database for a, a government mail shot on health or income tax or whatever. I mean, that's that's just good business. You wouldn't want a public body like the government to spend time and waste time and money building that information up again from scratch because that will be inefficient. And similarly, your credit card company knows your name, your address. It knows an awful lot about your finances. Uh, and obviously it knows the number of your credit cards. They also know quite a lot about what you buy. And um, what they do is they use that information in a way that I don't think people uh, imagine when they sign up for the credit card. For instance, we've all had, many of us have had that call where you've bought uh, a tank of petrol and then you've gone and, buy, gone and bought five CDs and, a, and two pairs of sports shoes and all of a sudden the, the credit card company rings you up and says, have you actually made these transactions? Um, you know, we've had a fraud alert on our system and we want to check you're still in control of your credit card. Now, when you... When you sign up for your credit card, you don't actually think they're going to be looking at your purchases like that. But we kind of accept it that they do, and uh, most of us accept it that it's not a problem because they're trying to prevent fraud against our account. Um, and this is really what I'm trying to get to, is that once information is held on us, then companies will use it, and organisations will use it because the information is there, and if they need to do something with it that they feel is legitimate, they will do it. So... Apple will store information about the cell towers and hotspots around you in order to help with the um, location services on their phones. And they will store that on the phones and they will store it in other places. Um, and pretty much every cell phone does that. Um, even a candy bar phone needs to know where it is on the network, so it's always communicating with the cell phone network and triangulating how close it is to the various cell towers, which means that when you receive a call the uh, cell phone company knows exactly which part of their network to direct that call to to make sure it rings on your phone. Now, most of us don't think most of the time about the fact that the cell phone network is doing that, but of course it is, doing it all the time your phone is on. And um, law enforcement services or private investigators who want to track you can use that information if they want to, um, to various degrees. Law enforcement may need to receive, uh, get a warrant or a subpoena in order to get the information. Um, a private investigator probably won't be able to get a warrant or a subpoena, but um, the way private investigators work is they want to track somebody down like that is they'll go to the company, they'll have a contact in a company, and they'll hand them over a, 
an envelope with some cash in it and say, please, can you get me some information? And there will be people who are always prepared to do that. Really what I'm kind of getting to with this is that, you know, as I say, privacy is a myth. I think it always has been a myth. Various organisations collect all sorts of information about us as we transact with them, whether it be the government or private bodies or whatever. And um, nowadays it's all electronic and all that information can be joined up to build a, a fairly coherent picture about you if somebody has the time and the inclination to do so. And in most cases, actually doing that is not illegal. Um, all you need to do, if you really want to build a picture of somebody and what they've been doing and where they've been going, is pull two or three different sets of data like that together and join them up. Um, and at that point, you then start to build probably build a fairly scarily picture about, well, you know, where I've been going, what I've been doing this week. Um, if somebody wanted to do that about me, I'm sure they could pull credit card records, they could pull um, CCTV, CCTV images, um, they could pull um, mobile phone data, and I don't think they necessarily would need to go and pull the, the record data on my phone um, or, or hack into um, a PSN network or any other network to try and see my activity. I mean, heck, my, I mean, me for certain, I'm always tweeting on Twitter about stuff I'm doing or things that I've seen that make me comment. And that's public published information. Anybody could go to that. It's out there in the, in the open domain. Um, and anybody with half a brain and access to other data could use that as corroborating evidence to build up a picture of what I've been doing. If they see me, <laughs> for instance, as a crude example, if they see me tweeting about the Royal Wedding, um, then it's a fairly good, um, fairly good assumption to assume that I'm watching the Royal Wedding at the point that I tweet about it. And if they then can get access to my cell phone records to see where my cell phone is at the time, they can find out when I was watching the Royal Wedding at the time that I made that tweet. You see, kind of see what I'm getting at here is, is anybody with access to more than one source of information can start to use that to build up a picture that probably is fairly accurate about what people are doing and where they're going. The long and the short of it is that uh, while I, I, as I say, I don't want to give anybody a pass that they don't have a responsibility to protect this data, but I think we all need to accept the data exists and it's out there. And ultimately, if somebody has the will, the wit and the, and the, uh, and the resources, then they can use that information to build up a, probably a fairly accurate picture of who we are, what we do, what we like and what we don't. Um, and it's that aggregate picture from all those various different places where we readily agree to hand data over that's the actual scary thing and um, there's nothing we can do about that and you can't legally protect about that you can't create a law that says you uh, any individual can cannot go out and collect data from various sources and build up a piecemeal picture of what people are doing so you know if if, if you're that exercised about privacy and you're that concerned about um, not being tracked and, and you know, this, this kind of notional straw men figures of saying, oh, well, you know, uh, somebody could find out where I've been if I had an abusive partner or if I was having an affair and that sort of thing. This could be all these bits of data could be used to build up a picture of what I've been doing. My answer to that is, well, yes, 
and there's nothing you can do about that. And getting indignant about any one particular company is not going to change that situation. I guess the conclusion I'm trying to come to is this. All this information is being collected and stored by all the companies and organisations we deal with every day. And that's being done not for nefarious reasons, but just because they need to collect this information to deliver us services or deliver us the things that we expect from them. The problem is, if somebody goes away and collects those bits of information together, joins up the dots, they can find out all sorts of information about us. And there's nothing we can do about that. You can't legislate that away. You can't prevent it from happening. So if you really are worried about your privacy, if you really are concerned that somebody might do that to you for whatever reason, you have to do more than complain about one individual company collecting that information or not have a phone or not have one piece of technology or another. You have to get rid of it all. You have to not have a computer, not have a mobile phone, not have a credit card, not have um, GPS in your car. Um, you need to avoid urban areas where there's going to be CCTV. You have to pay for everything with cash. Um, you really have to, you know, go to a long way to disappear off the grid because unfortunately the nature of our society nowadays is that every time you interact with somebody, that's creating a digital record somewhere. And if you're not comfortable with that, well, um, probably the 21st century Western world isn't necessarily for you. For the rest of us, I think we all kind of accept that's the way it is, but we just really have to recognise it and uh, understand it and appreciate that that privacy thing is probably a little bit of a myth and uh, something we can never ever get, get back to. Looking for in-depth coverage of the Mac universe? How about hard-hitting interviews with industry leaders with all the questions you want to ask? Or detailed product reviews for programs costing thousands of dollars? Then you should definitely find something other than the MyMac.com podcast. The MyMac.com podcast is the show for every Mac user. Fun, entertaining, with news, reviews, and interviews with people just like you who want more from a podcast than just talking heads. Find us on iTunes by doing a search for my Mac and get ready for a good time. I used to like talking heads. After that slightly heavy topic of uh, privacy and uh, the realities of the of the information revolution, um, let's let's get on to talk about something that's uh, a little bit lighter. As uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know, both Tim and I are, are fairly avid gamers. Don't get to game as much as I would like, to be honest, but um, that's uh, that's unfortunate. But that's kind of the way it is. I've got to got to, got to earn a crust. If only I had a job where I could play games all day every day. Um, but I do enjoy my video games, uh, always have done, and, um, you know, because I've been a gamer really since video gaming kind of took off in the early 80s, uh, I, I kind of, I see the way gaming's changed, I, I'm quite a big game, uh, nostalgia gaming freak as well, so I like to occasionally go back and play the old games, and, um, of course we've had advances in technology and graphics capability and, uh, 
media and storage in the games nowadays compared to the kind of the arcade games and the Atari 2600 type games that, that I kind of cut my teeth on when I was growing up. But I kind of, I, you know, I've been thinking really about, about how in some ways gaming has changed and in other ways it hasn't. If you go back to those old um, arcade games from the early 80s, they were very simple, not just in technology and capability of the machines that they were running on, but it, kind of in gameplay. If you look at some of the classic arcade games, they pretty much had one gaming mechanic, one kind of set of things you had to do. And um, in terms of scaling up the difficulty, well, it, you just basically did that same thing over and over again, and the game made it harder and harder for you to do it. Um, some games were really hard right to start with. The games like Defender were kind of, you know, not very accessible because you really had to kind of um, get good at it fairly quickly to make any sort of progress. But others, you know, you could really kind of get into it before you really start to hit the, the, the high difficulty levels. Now, sort of roll that forward 20, 30 years, and here we are in 2011. And if you look at a game like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, for instance, which... Um, is a game I've played through to completion. It's actually not that different, in that while graphically, obviously, it's very different, and it's trying to, it's purporting to present to you a, a very realistic environment of what it's like to be a, a soldier. In terms of how you actually play the game, it's not that different from the old arcade games, in that you have a, a set of activities to do, a certain game mechanic to achieve those activities, which is moving through the 3D environment, shooting things. And basically, the game just gets harder and harder doing that same thing. If you play the game from beginning to the end, you won't find much variety in terms of the actual activity you have to do. You're basically moving through a, a what, what's actually purports to be a, a fully immersive 3D environment, but actually is pretty much rails. You can only move through the environment in a preset way um, and in a preset route. And um, you basically have a series of set pieces where you're shooting your way through particular sets of soldiers until you get to the end of the level. Then you get a cutscene, and then the story moves on, and you go on to the next level, and that next level will be harder uh, in terms of more enemies, um, you know, guys shooting at you from different places. But in terms of the actual mechanic, what you have to do pretty much the same all the way through to the very end of the game uh, and by the end of the game obviously you'll be fighting a much harder level than, than you did at the beginning but you'll actually still be doing the same things as you did on level one. The only difference of course is that there's an awful lot of graphical and story type stuff um, kind of encasing that gameplay. The problem I kind of have with that is that you know, nowadays these games can be quite short. You know, with a certainly for most of them, if you get a new game and you're a fairly competent gamer, you can probably play through the entire thing in a weekend if you have enough time. And um, I sometimes find myself wondering if you didn't have all that storyline and cutscenes and production stuff around the game, would you actually get better games or certainly longer games? For instance, if you didn't have cutscenes purporting to, to give you a story in a game like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, then would the developer, wouldn't having not have to spend that money on those resources in terms of writing and um, 
graphical presentation of the cutscenes and story and that and what have you, will you be able to create four or five more levels? Perhaps inject more variety into the gameplay? Um, actually give you something that, in, while it might not be as a, as a complete storytelling experience, would be a more interactive and fun experience for you as a player. <laughs> of course, you know, we we like to have a, some story and, and some immersion in our games, but ultimately it is a game, it's not a movie. And I can't help feeling that the, um, the gaming industry is kind of going down the wrong direction by approaching this really, really heavy and certainly very, very expensive production process for the games nowadays that's leading to games that cost you know, tens of millions of dollars to produce. It, it's all very well, but the thing is, is that are we actually suffering as gamers for a result, as a result of that? Because we're getting games that certainly some of the uh, less well-reviewed um, high dollar value games nowadays often get criticised not so much for bad story, um, or bad presentation, but they get criticised for ga- bad gameplay. Um, how many times have we read a review or played a game where we think, oh, well, okay, you know, um, the story's interesting, the production's all very good, it, graphically it's up to par, but actually the gameplay's not much fun. And, you know, much in the same way that you could argue that the movie industry is kind of going down a bit of a blind alley by pursuing 3D uh, and 3D at all costs, regardless of what it does to the movie... I do wonder sometimes whether some of the um, games manufacturers are doing the same thing by layering, you know, very heavy story experiences onto games that potentially don't really suit them. I don't want to single out Call of Duty Modern Warfare as as necessarily saying I think it's a bad thing um, in that particular game's instance. Um, You know, it was a great game. Uh, The sequel is also a great game. Um, But again, you know, (laughs) let's face it, you know exactly War and Peace, those stories in those games. They are effectively the same story presented in a different way. It's, you know, here's a bad guy. Um, let's put you through a series of missions that notionally uh, put you as the protagonist to um, bring down the bad guy. So despite the fact that they're probably spending quite a lot of money on creating that immersive story experience for a game like that, Actually, ultimately, the story is pretty generic and very much the same between any of the different games. Um, look at Portal 2 versus the original Portal, for instance, and get Portal 2 as a game that, that, I meant, that Tim and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. What was great about the first Portal game is that when you first started playing it, it was a very simple puzzle game. Um, there wasn't really any story in there. Now, as you went through the game, some story kind of came out of it. And uh, by the end of the game, you are actually fighting uh, an enemy who's kind of been controlling the scenes throughout the game. You're not really aware of it. It's certainly not pushed into your face. Um, And the writing and storytelling elements of it is very subtle and is presented to you as part of the game-playing experience rather than as something separate. Portal 2, unfortunately, takes a very much a different approach. It takes much more of the Call of Duty type of approach where there's an awful lot of cutscenes, there's an awful lot of heavy production and voice acting going on um, and uh, the story is very much front and centre rather than something you discover as you play the game and you could argue that the um, storytelling element and the puzzle gameplay element of, of Portal 2 are fairly separate 
and I'm not sure that's a good thing. Now, flip that on its head, you take a game like Super Mario Galaxy, which I know a lot of people don't really like the Wii very much and don't think it's much of a, much of a console, but I, I challenge anybody who's a serious game player not to look at Super Mario Galaxy and accept that it's one of the um, you know, finest game-playing experiences of a platformer of, of pretty much any game that's ever been made. And what's interesting about Super Mario Galaxy is, first of all, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. There are literally hundreds of hours of gameplay in there. Even if you're playing through the main notional story, uh, and let's face it, it's a Mario game. All Mario games have exactly the same story, which is uh, Mario's girl has been kidnapped by one of the big Nintendo enemies, and Mario has to complete a series of, of platform levels to get her back with a few boss battles in, interspersed in there. But what's interesting about Super Mario Galaxy is that, you know, obviously, very light story, not really much storytelling going on in there in the game. Certainly, um, pretty much very, very few cutscenes or anything like that. But the gameplay itself is really front and centre, and an incredibly varied set of gameplay. Um, you're not doing the same thing all the time on each level with different difficulty settings. There are many, many different styles of game within Super Mario Galaxy. There's racing, there's puzzle, there's plat conventional platformer, um, you know, different abilities, different types of, of things. It plays around with gravity, it plays around with, with platforms. It, it, you know, it does hundreds of different things and it's an incredibly rich game playing experience for all of that. And, because it's so light on story, it's obviously that Nintendo and um, the development team who created the, the game were able to cram much more gameplay into it. Now, which is better? Um, well, that's, that's always going to be a subjective thing. But I, I find myself coming down the side of saying, if I have two games put in front of me that are fairly similar, but one emphasises story and has lots of cutscenes in it, but the gameplay isn't particularly great and then there's another one that actually is very light or perhaps has a really bad story um but has excellent gameplay then that's probably the one i'm going to prefer um and uh, i'm always in favor really in games of terms of having longevity uh, a longer game playing experience uh, and great gameplay uh, to really get the best out of a game and what does worry me is sometimes i think the the game producers are much more focused on the um, on the movie type elements, the story and the graphics, uh, and perhaps the gameplay becomes a secondary concern. But what do you guys think? Have we got any ardent gamers out there who'd, who'd like to talk? Come onto the show and talk to us about that. Um, we have the Geeky Show Ever, which is uh, another podcast where we we often have talked at length about games and movies and that sort of thing. But it, it's it's not officially on hiatus, but we are struggling to get um, hosts together for to do that show on a regular basis. So uh, in the meantime, if we want to talk gaming, I think Tech Fans is an excellent place to come and do it. So I would encourage any of our listeners who feel like they might want to have a conversation with us about that to get in touch and we'll see if we can get you on the show because I think that would be a, a fun element to the podcast. So um, please please feel free to do so if you think you might have something to, to discuss on that score. As always, if you want to contact us, um, you can send email to feedback at mymac.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter. Um, Tim is at mymac. I am at David B. Cohen. 
Um, funnily enough, I did find the guy who's got at David Cohen, uh, and straight there in his profile page, it actually says his name is actually uh, David G. Cohen. And uh, obviously, he got onto Twitter before I did and was able to claim the name without the uh, without the um, letter in the middle. But there you go. So anyway, um, get in touch with us. We do have a Skype phone number as well, but I have no idea what it is off the top of my head, and um, I, I'm not able to give it to you, so apologies for that. But uh, you can always uh, do what I'm doing now, which is record a, a voice memo on your iPhone and or uh, iPod Touch or other mobile phone or, or device, and then email that to us if you so wish. We'd uh, we'd love to hear audio feedback, and we'll, we'll definitely put it in the show. So. Um, I'd encourage you to do that. That's going to do it for this week, and um, hopefully Tim will be back next week and we can talk more about what's going on in tech. Speak to you soon.